Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In a world increasingly more authoritarian, in a global atmosphere that becomes more polarized and tribal everywhere, the threat of global hostage-taking has increased exponentially. The threat is particularly increased for journalists, many of whom are on the front lines of reporting on repression and brutality. In fact, a record 262 journalists were in jail around the world at the end of 2018. All of this raises a far larger question, but one that particularly journalists have to think about every day. That is, how we should deal, as a matter of public policy, with journalists or any other citizens that are taken hostage somewhere in the world. The American policy has been that we do not negotiate with hostage takers. That policy is not universal, as many nations, including France and Spain and others, have taken a different view. The answer and the results are not clear-cut or obvious. What is clear is that sometimes just plain Mr. Tough Guy is just plain stupid. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Joel Simon. Joel Simon is the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists. He's written widely on media issues and contributed to the Columbia Journalism Review, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Guardian. It is my pleasure to welcome Joel Simon here to talk about his new work, We Want to Negotiate, The Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. Joel Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. A delight to have you here. You're coming to this discussion, to this larger discussion, from the point of view of the world of journalism. Talk first a little bit about the Committee to Protect Journalism, about how it got started, and mm-hmm. the way in which these issues really came to the fore. So CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, was actually founded in, 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 in 1981, and uh, it was created by a group of U.S. journalists in response to uh, repression and violence committed against journalists around the world. The sense was that journalists in this country work with the protection of the First Amendment, and journalists in many other parts of the world uh, face violence and, 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 and uh, repression as a result of the, the work that they're doing, and that we have an obligation as journalists to defend their rights and stand up um, uh, on their behalf. And so we're really an organization of journalists, and we use journalism in defense of our colleague. I worked for uh, over a decade as a journalist in Latin America. I covered the conflict in Central America and in Mexico. Most of our staff have a similar background. And one thing that we do is, you know, we cover sort of the press freedom beat. Whenever a journalist is thrown in jail or or they're attacked, we publish stories about that. We write about it. We, we engage with the responsible authorities. We put pressure on the perpetrators of these acts of violence. And as a result, sometimes journalists get out of jail. Sometimes censorship is, um, laws are, are, are repealed. Sometimes the um, uh, people responsible for this violent acts against journalists go to jail. Uh, we do this every day. We do this all over the world. Um, we believe that journalists everywhere should be able to report the news freely without fear of reprisal, and that's our day-to-day mission. What is it in a fundamental sense, and you touched on a lot of that, that really makes journalists a kind of protected class, really different in this discussion about hostage-taking than the average citizen that might be taken? Well, well, first, first of all, let me say that the dealing with hostage taking for you know is, is among the range of threats that we deal with every day at the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's just one of them. We're dealing with journalists who are put in prison. We're dealing with, with journalists who are murdered, uh, and then we're dealing with with other kinds of threats. But hostage taking is a 
recurrent theme. It's an, op- it's an occupational hazard for journalists. And I've thought about, a lot about why this is, and in some ways I've drawn, uh, you know, from my own experience as, as, as a journalist in, in Central America and, and also uh, in Mexico. So when you're a journalist, you know, you, you, you have to go to places that are violent and unstable in order to do your job. You're part of your job if you're, you know, if you're, if you're reporting on conflict, if you're an international correspondent, is to, is to um, uh, be an observer, to be a witness. And that means you have to engage with both the victims and, in some cases, the participants in the conflict. And you have to get close to them, and you have to listen to them, and you have to hear their concerns. And you have to, to a certain extent, put your trust in them that they will uh, engage with you by telling you about their concerns and giving you the opportunity to then write about that. And so journalists are uniquely vulnerable because sometimes that trust is betrayed. That trust is betrayed and the journalists are taken hostage. Sometimes it's by criminal organizations. Sometimes it's by political actors in a conflict environment. Sometimes it's by, you know, again, by common criminals. Um, so it's an, it, it's an occupational hazard. Other groups, uh, it could be you know, aid workers or it could be um, business people or it could be tourists even working and you know, traveling in these kinds of, kinds of volatile environments. But I do think there's a special risk that journalists confront, and it's, it's inherent to uh, their role in these environments. In your experience, talk a little bit about how journalists – that put themselves in these dangers, in these environments, mm-hmm. think about this idea of not being willing to negotiate for hostages. Oh, it's, 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 it's very varied. Um, so basically when, when journalists are, are taken captive, and you know, the other thing I should, I should point out is that as a journalist myself who used to engage with, with, with people who were potentially a threat, you know, one of the things you always sort of imagine that, you know, actually I had these kinds of discussions, you know, look, if you take me hostage, uh, I'm not going to be able to report the story. And other journalists aren't going to come here, and you're going to lose your ability to communicate with the world if you threaten journalists, and that's something that's valuable to you, even if you're, a, you know, a, a kind of radical political group. Well, the ch- change in the technology, the change in the ability of these groups to disseminate their inf- information through these other means, through social media or other kinds of technologies, has made that argument sort of obsolete, almost quaint. So journalists are much more vulnerable as a result because the, the main thing that kept them safe in these environments was their utility, and that's been, been undermined uh, by the technology. So the threat has actually increased as a result. Um, so how do journalists feel about the appropriate response? It really varies. Um, some journalists, uh, many, many European journalists that I spoke to, um, and most European countries will negotiate when you're uh, if, if someone, if one of their citizens is taken hostage by a terror organization, and they'll sometimes pay ransom, and most journalists that I talked to from Europe felt that um, this actually, because it was a, it was an inherent risk in the work that they did, the fact that they came from governments that would respond and engage and try and win their freedom, made them feel just a bit safer. Now, some American and British journalists, um, you know, some of them, some of them take a contrary view because those American and British and Canadian governments do not pay, they do not negotiate. And they sort of argue that the willingness of the European governments to negotiate and pay um, actually makes it more dangerous for all journalists because it puts a target on their back. Uh, It makes them... uh, 
potentially more valuable as a hostage. So there's there's a debate and, and different views within uh, the community of, of, of international correspondence. Talk about the inherent conflict between government policy in the U.S. and the U.K. and what might be the attitude or policy of companies that these journalists work for. Well, the thing about hostage policy, you know, I, I had mentioned this debate um, about whether, you know, among journalists themselves, about whether government should pay. You know, what I found in the research for, for my book was that there didn't seem to be a correlation, even though there's a perception and there's an inherent logic. Well, if you pay, there'll be more kidnappings. But the market for kidnapping is created, created by a number of complex factors. Um, so you mentioned companies, you mentioned families. Um, I mentioned some governments will pay. We, we know that they've sort of done the political math. So once there's a market for kidnapping, in other words, once um, once they're, you know, and, and families will always pay, right? I mean, families, you can't really judge a family for paying a ransom. It's a, it's a coercive act uh, to get their loved ones home. So once that market exists, then the crime is largely opportunistic. And the kidnappers are grabbing whoever they see in, in most circumstances, whether it's, you know, in Colombia uh, back in the day or more recently in Syria. Um, and so it's largely a crime of opportunity, and there doesn't seem to be much of a correlation between the hostage policy of a particular country, i.e., whether it negotiates uh, or ultimately pays ransom, and the risk to their citizens of being kidnapped. Right. You mentioned that there are companies, insurance brokers, or agencies yeah. in the U.K. that are actually running a business out of this. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I actually, you know, I really think it's an important business and a useful one and a, and a good business. But it's when you first hear about it, it's it's shocking. So there's something called K and R insurance that stands for kidnapping and ransom. And you know, we were talking about how governments won't negotiate with terrorists, but terrorist organizations that engage in kidnapping are a tiny subset of the overall. Uh, kind of risk factor for, for kidnappings. Most kidnappings are criminal in nature. And it's perfectly legal to pay um, for the families and, and, and for their employers, for example, to pay a criminal organization. It's only illegal, technically illegal, for them to pay a terrorist organization. How this distinction is made is something we can talk about. So kidnapping and ransom insurance, for example, um, if you, the way it works is if you are insured, you're, first of all, you're not supposed to know you're insured. So if your employer has kidnapping and ransom insurance, it's not supposed to tell the employees because the idea is the employees, if they're kidnapped, shouldn't be negotiating directly with their kidnappers. And ultimately, the way it works is once you have to, the, the company or the family or whoever holds the policy will have to pay. They'll have to raise the money to do so, and that makes the negotiation credible. So maybe if it's a family, they have to sell their house. Um, they have to sell their car, they have to borrow from friends, whatever they need to do. And then the um, policy, once they pay, will reimburse them. And that means that while the experience is obviously devastating, at least the family is not economically ruined. And the logic is that you can only hold a policy for the amount of your net worth, so you're not going to pay any more than you're worth, so the ransom does not go up. Um, and the other thing that these policies do is when they're activated, they provide a professional negotiator. And this is a whole profession. People don't realize this, but there are professional negotiators who this is their job. They negotiate with, with people who, 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 who take hostages and, and kidnap people. And they're very experienced and they're very astute and they know how to get people back. 
and to pay as little as possible. So, uh, you know, the existence of this insurance allows companies, for example, to operate in high-risk environments with appropriate duty of care, which is sort of the term of art, you know, be able to say to their employees, you know, look, if something happens to you, we have the appropriate insurance, uh, we will be accountable, we know there's a risk, but we're taking every measure that we prudently can to protect you. Is there a danger that those, and, and use journalists as an example, we could use CEOs as well, that those that either have insurance or operate out of countries that are willing to negotiate will by nature be willing to take more of a personal risk in whatever it is that they do? You know, I don't think so because kidnapping is such a terrible fate. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks, well, look, if I get kidnapped, it'll be terrible, but, uh, you know, somebody will pay and, um, you know, I'll, I'll come out alive, so I'm going to, uh, you know, increase the risk. I think, I don't think anyone makes that calculation. I think people want to avoid uh, being kidnapped at all costs, um, you know, especially when you're dealing with these parts of the world where, um, you know, Islamist groups are targeting Westerners because it is a terrible uh, a miserable fate. So, um, you know, I, th- I think that people recognize that um, in certain circumstances, in order to do your job effectively, particularly as a journalist or an aid worker, you know, you're, you, you are performing an absolutely vital function, and there's no way to do that job without assuming a certain level of risk. Um, and since you must assume this risk, they want um, the protections necessary to uh, respond if things go wrong, but I don't think psychologically, and this is, you know, not something I've seen confirmed by research, but it's just my own impression talking to many, many people in the course of this book, that it increases uh, the probability of high-risk behavior. Talk a little bit about how we evolve this policy here in the U.S. of absolutely mm-hmm. not negotiating with terrorists. Yes. Well, first of all, it is important that that we we say you know we, you know we talk about the policy of not negotiating with terrorists because it, it's somewhat confusing. But let me just run through the circum, other circumstances in which we will negotiate. So, if an American is unjustly imprisoned, effectively a judicial hostage taken by a rogue government like Iran or North Korea, you know we will negotiate. If American service personnel is captured in combat, in a combat environment, even by a quote-unquote designated terrorist group, we will negotiate. We did this with Bo Bergdahl. We will release um, people who are held as prisoners of war on our side. That is absolutely something that happens. If you are uh, kidnapped or taken hostage in the United States by any group, whether it's criminal or terrorist, we will negotiate. And there's even money stashed at um, uh, Federal Reserve um, uh, branches around the country to pay what's called, the FBI calls hostage ransom as lure. So in other words, you pay the ransom, you free the kid, the person, the victim, and then you um, uh, try and arrest the people and capture the people who carried out the crime. So it's a very, it's a very limited policy. We do not negotiate with terrorists. And where did this come from? I was actually surprised to learn this in the course of my book, but, you know, the first threat to uh, the, the first time this emerged was in the 1960s in Latin America, where U.S. diplomats were being targeted by leftist groups, and the U.S. started doing research uh, to try and figure out how to respond to these, this, this, this emerging threat. And then um, in 1973, there was a Palestinian organization that took over the Saudi embassy in Khartoum in Sudan and took a bunch of diplomats hostage, including two American diplomats. And one of their demands was for the release of Sirhan Sirhan, who, was the, uh, who had assassinated uh, Robert F. Kennedy, 
And so the next morning, President Nixon had a press conference um, that had been previously scheduled, and he was asked by a journalist, how do you intend to respond to this, this demand from this, these, these Palestinian hostage takers? Of course, he said, we, you know, we won't come to blackmail, we're not going to negotiate. And the two American hostages, once the, the diplomats, once the word reached the, 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 the hostage takers, these two diplomats were taken down in the basement in the embassy in Khartoum, and they were executed. And after that happened, according to one of the people I talked to who was involved in the formulation of this policy, you know, the policy was sort of written in blood. The pres- people had died as a result of this um, proclamation from, from, from the president. So the U.S. sort of doubled down. And, you know, they started looking at justifications for the policy. The arguments were it made Americans safer, as I mentioned, that's debatable, um, and that it would um, decrease potential funding for a terrorist organization. That's a more complex argument, which I also engage with. But the origin was really um, a little bit uh, of an impulsive um, uh, statement from, from, from President Nixon that actually led to a very bad outcome. Uh, but the policy has been in place more or less in various formulations uh, since then. And talk about globally, the countries that, that have not taken this attitude. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's a very... You know, it's 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 a it's a you know it's really in some ways it's more of a political slogan. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We're not going to back down. You know, it sells reasonably well in the United States. Um, it sells reasonably well in the United Kingdom, which is the other really the other leader in this kind of framework and sort of promulgating this framework. But it doesn't sell well in many of the sort of countries of continental Europe because the expectations of the of the of the the political calculus and the expectations of the call the voters is that the government will respond um, when citizens are taken hostage abroad, and in France, what I found is there tends to be there's a culture of political mobilization around this expectation, which is in some ways born in France's colonial history. You know that the government will respond to French people who who are outside of France who are in these kinds of situations, and if you can get people into the street and make it into a political issue in France, then the government will respond and will try and win the freedom of the hostage. And in most cases, that involves the payment of ransom. And uh, the government has sort of done the calculation that, you know, politically, this is what it must do. And in other countries of Europe, this is the same. So in, in Spain, where the central government is constantly trying to demonstrate to some of the more restive regions of the country, the Basque region and in Catalonia, that it can really uh, uh, that it can respond on behalf of Spanish citizens uh, abroad. So their ability to bring these folks home is really essential in terms of the domestic politics, and that's why France is, I mean, the Spain as well uh, negotiates and pays. And as a result, I should point out, Spain has the best record of any country in the world of bringing home its citizens when they're taken hostage uh, by terror organizations. According to the data uh, that's available, they have a 100% uh, recovery rate. Every Spanish citizen uh, who's been taken captive by a, a terrorist organization around the world has come, come home alive. It's an interesting distinction because you can make the case in many instances that whatever the terrorist group might be, that it is also a criminal enterprise and approach it that way. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, an, it is, it seems kind of arbitrary right. that um, the, you know, take the, take the Mexican uh, uh, cartels. 
um, they function as terrorist groups. I mean, they, they, they carry out uh, public violence with the intention of terrorizing local populations. They control territory. They are a radically destabilizing force in, in Mexico. And yet, if you are kidnapped by a Mexican drug cartel, uh, you are legally allowed to pay, or your family is allowed to pay, and you will have the support of the FBI, even to the extent of potentially delivering the ransom to make sure that you are not defrauded. Um, if you are kidnapped by, um, you know, al-Qaeda, uh, the U.S. government le- legally may not, may not help you, may not assist you, and probably won't. Technically, it is illegal to pay ransom. Um, there is um, the possibility that you will be prosecuted, although, um, you know, the U.S. government um, hasn't, hasn't actually done it. But the families that I talked to who lived through this experience um, live in fear that they could be prosecuted, and it also makes it impossible, really, to raise the funds because – if somebody is, and, and I've been in this position myself, that's actually how I came to write this book. If you are trying to help an American family raise funds uh, to um, bring a loved one home who's kidnapped by a terror organization, you are very worried about your legal liability. Uh, so from a practical perspective, Americans who are kidnapped by terror organizations, remember I, I, rem- I mentioned that Spain has a 100% recovery rate. Well, Americans are come home at a rate of about 25%. So that's the cost of this policy is that 75% uh, of Americans who are, who are taken hostage by designated terrorist groups don't come out alive. And to put it in personal terms, you talk a lot about what happened with journalist James Foley. Yeah, I mean, that's how I came to this whole issue is, um, you know, I've been involved in, in, in advocating in different ways for journalists kidnapped around the world. Uh, some of uh, your listeners may remember Daniel Pearl from the Wall Street Journal, um, who was uh, kidnapped and eventually killed by Al Qaeda not long after, while working in Pakistan, uh, not after, not long after um, uh, September 11th, September 11th attacks. Uh, but you know, even though I've been working on this issue for years, I'd never seen anything like what happened in Syria, uh, beginning in late 2012 into 2013, when dozens of, of journalists uh, went missing, and initially we didn't even know um, what had happened to them. Uh, But after a period of time, um, uh, uh, James Foley's parents came to me. It had been over a year uh, since um, uh, their son had disappeared, and they had been contacted by the kidnappers. And then the title of my book, We Want to Negotiate, is actually the note that that his family received from, from the kidnappers. Um, But they were, they were confronting a terrible situation. Um, The U S government, um, uh, members of the U.S. government, they weren't getting clear direction, uh, had indicated they could be prosecuted for paying ransom. Um, they were, there, was a, there, was, there was a lack of engagement, coordination, even basic sympathy uh, for their situation. So they were at wit's end, and they came to me, and they, just, they asked if I could help them um, raise money and, uh, to, to ransom their side. It wasn't even Clear to clear to us and to, certainly to me that this would be successful, but but they had run out of other options, and that's really where I first confronted uh, this issue of whether paying ransom would actually 
you know, make it more dangerous for, for other journalists. Um, and after Jim was killed, um, Diane Foley, um, uh, Jim's mother, came to me and, and sort of challenged me to look deeply at this issue. It's a very complex and, and, and difficult issue and one where some of the, some of the conclusions, at least in my view, are, are somewhat counterintuitive. But she challenged me to take a careful look. Um, and that's re- that was really the genesis of this book. Where does law enforcement come down on this issue? Well, I talked to a to a number of FBI negotiators um, who'd who'd been involved in various situations around the world, and I they really argued for for maximum flexibility. Um, they sort of said, you know, when the uh, you know that when the U.S. The, the higher this goes up in the political chain, the more complex and difficult uh, the negotiations become. I mean, it's not the FBI; it's not the role of the FBI. You know, field field agents and hostage negotiators to set the policy. So, you know, it's not that they had necessarily um, had strong views um, on the policy itself, but within the policy, they really wanted maximum flexibility. They tended to argue um, with me that you know each case is different. Um, that you shouldn't box yourself into some uh, some 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 specific um, uh, framework, and that you should you should look for creatively for the best possible uh, solution. You know, slogans are not helpful. I mean, you know, one of the things about hostage negotiation is usually the, the, the kind of point at which the negotiation happens is the, the only point of mutual agreement is that the hostage is only valuable when alive. So, uh, and that there is value to the hostage, right? Because both sides agree on that point. So if you start the negotiation by saying we won't negotiate and we won't pay ransom, you know, you're undermining the value of the hostage. And if the hostage has no value, then there's no incentive to the hostage taker to keeping them alive. If you think about it, if a family member of yours uh, were taken hostage, you wouldn't start the negotiation by saying I'm not going to negotiate with you and I'm certainly not going to pay ransom. You know, even if you um, didn't have the ability or for some reason were not willing to pay the ransom, you would want to at least engage with them. And I think that's one of the shortcomings of the U.S. policy um, and one that sometimes FBI agents talk about because you're also missing an opportunity to gather intelligence um, that could be used either for a rescue or for um, a potential prosecution later on. You mentioned that, that this policy underwent a review during the Obama yeah. administration. Talk about that. Yeah, so after, um, you know, the terrible, terrible outcome, um, you know, so you'll remember that, you know, so t- throughout 2000 and, 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 and 13, um, uh, Europeans and Americans and British hostages uh, were were captured in Syria by um, the group that eventually became the Islamic State. And they uh, have talking to the surviving hostages, you know, my view is that the, 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 the Islamic State militants, when they captured these folks, didn't quite know what to do with them, but they kind of eventually realized that there was this disparity in policies and that they could negotiate and get millions of dollars from the Europeans and that um, they could then you know, kill the Americans and British hostages because they didn't have the same value, use them for propaganda, use them for recruitment, uh, try and, ex- try and you know, present um, the U.S. government and the British government is callous and indifferent to the fate of their, their citizens who score political points in that way. Of course, this was an absolute, absolutely depraved. Uh, but the families just felt 
this was their moment of greatest need, and the U.S. government just wasn't there for them, just wasn't supporting them. And Diane Foley, in particularly, in particular, after her son was killed, really became quite outspoken um, about um, just the dysfunctionality of, of, of U.S. policy, and she was quite. Um, upset with President Obama. She had a meeting with him, and she's a very forthright person. And uh, the president, this was after Jim was killed, told her, you know, you know, uh, Diane, that um, you know, Jim was always our top priority. And she said to him, Mr. President, you know that's not true. That's how direct she is. And the president sort of conceded that, you know, the policy needed to be improved. And to his credit, uh, he ordered a hostage policy review. And that that was a, a fairly a broad effort. But, but the one thing that was off the table right from the start was this no concessions policy. Um, there was no appetite, according to people I spoke to who were, were involved with the process, to discuss the no concessions framework. What they did look at is how they could better coordinate, how they could better support the families. And as a result of that um, policy review, some new structures were created. Uh, one is called the uh, Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell. It combines elements from the FBI, from the State Department, better coordinates U.S. intelligence, better engages with the families. A new State Department um, a position was created to, to better coordinate uh, response. And I have to acknowledge, and the families generally agree, that as a result, um, the situation improved. Um, and while um, it's still, there's still um, areas that, that need work, and I, I believe personally that we should have a discussion about the no concessions framework, at least the initial the kind of engagement with the families and the support for the families um, that's definitely in a much more in a much better position than we were uh, prior to the hostage um, policy review and finally what concerns you most about the state of journalists around the world today I think what concerns me most you know I can look at the data and talk about journalists um, um, you know, imprisoned, uh, you mentioned that at the outset. But, you know, the thing that concerns me most is that the political leadership, including the political leadership in this country, does not appreciate or value um, the work that journalists do and their role in keeping us informed and in ensuring accountability. This, of course, does not mean that journalists uh, always do a great job or that everyone loves everything about journalism. It just means that they have the freedom to do their job and even to, to make mistakes and and to do the things that happens when you when you have a free environment, you know the U.S. Um, you know histor- historically, um, despite our own sh- shortcomings, which we can freely acknowledge, has been a leader in terms of advocating globally for the rights of journalists and for press freedom. And you know under President Trump, um, that leadership role has been squandered. And um, so now, you know, we live in a framework in which, you know, fake news and enemies of the people and this kind of rhetoric gets bandied about. And, you know, we're having this debate in the United States about how, whether this is harmful or whether journalists are genuinely under threat. Um, as a result, I think there's some arguments uh, that suggest that they are. But outside of the United States, this is having a terrible detrimental impact because it's emboldening autocratic leaders around the world who are imprisoning journalists in record numbers. They, they are so brazen that they're murdering people like Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was a columnist for the Washington Post, who was killed by a Saudi hit squad sent by Riyadh, um, apparently on the orders of the, the crown prince to, to execute him 
in the Saudi uh, consulate in Istanbul. And, you know, the U.S. government should be demanding uh, accountability, should be demanding justice for Jamal Khashoggi. It should be speaking out um, about the, um, the, the deteriorating environment for press freedom and the rights of journalists around the world. And I'm afraid that without that U.S. leadership, which I think is difficult uh, to come by um, under under the, the current uh, president, you know, journalists are going to continue uh, to be vulnerable. They're going to continue to face uh, escalating threats of violence, and they're going to continue to face the risk of repression and, and and ultimately imprisonment. So, you know, if I had to put my finger on a single um, uh, issue that troubles me, I think it's this: that you know, we need global, we need political leaders of global stature to defend the rights of journalists, to articulate why they're important, to put some skin in the game. And right now, I'm afraid we don't have that. Joel Simon, his book is We Want to Negotiate, The Secret World of Kidnapping, Hostages, and Ransom. It's just out from Columbia Global Reports. Joel, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.